You're listening to Women Transcend. I'm Jennifer Todd, and this is a podcast that explores issues that affect women and girls worldwide. Each episode, we dive into a topic of national or international significance and discuss the impact on women and girls and how they are able to overcome or transcend. Welcome, friends. We have a lot of exciting things going on for this episode. And to start with, I have some shout outs that I would like to give. First and foremost, we recently ran and completed a successful Kickstarter campaign. And I want to thank all of our backers for your support so that we could launch season two. This is now episode two, season two, and we are thrilled. So thank you very much to our backers. Thank you, Maggie Caritas, Jeffrey Todd, Taylor Hahn, Colleen Begley, Jenny Phillips, Catherine Seifert, Julie Belgard and Jackie Gorelick. Thank you all for supporting our Kickstarter and supporting our podcast. We really tremendously appreciate it. And we have some new equipment for our studio on order. So thank you very much for that. I also want to shout out to our listeners in the United States and abroad For the month of September, we have seen some really great numbers, and I thank you for spending the time listening to our episodes. And in particular, I have to say, Japan, again, you are delivering the numbers, so thank you. And we're seeing some really strong numbers from Germany, Lebanon, Austria, Ireland. Thank you all. And of course, to our listeners in the United States, thank you for joining us from the 38 states that have listened to our episodes. So this episode, we are going to be talking about raising healthy girls. We had an episode in season one on raising boys in a patriarchy. And we're sort of going to bookend that episode by talking about raising healthy girls. And joining me is my co-host, John Philbeck. Hello. How are you doing, John? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? Good. I um, am loving the fall weather. This is my favorite time of year. It's starting to cool off a little bit. Trees are starting to think about changing here in Maryland. Yes. So it's fall right now where we are. And that means one thing to me. Yes. The reoccurrence of the gingerbread latte. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Yes. I haven't. Nature's candy. Yes. It hasn't been spotted in the wild yet, but um, I cannot wait. <laughs> A seasonal favorite. Yes. It's almost feeling like it's time for to to um welcome the the latte back. Um <laughs> you know, when we were in Australia, the Aussies just didn't get the pumpkin spice flavor. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, they just uh, we don't get it. And and they actually gave us a lot of pumpkin spice flavored things that had gotten made. For- yeah. Do you do you want this? You're American. Uh-huh. But we also didn't get Vegemite. So uh, that's true. that sort of balances out. That's true. 
(laughs) (laughs) So I think that this is a really important episode. I am really grateful that we were able to get Dr. Dahlia Topolowski to join us to talk about raising healthy girls. She is a psychologist and specializes in child development. Yeah. She was amazing and provided a lot of great insight. Both as a as a mother herself and also as a, a clinical psychologist. Yes, as a professional. So as parents of a daughter, I think that this is is something that you just can't escape. This this sort of conundrum of raising a healthy daughter in an era that is very arguably not just misogynistic and not just patriarchal, but we're in a really kind of a dark time for lots of people. Yeah. And it's hard to think about how to be the best parent in this time. And we talked about that with our expert guest, but this is a difficult time to be a parent, I would say. Sure. Just because of the political rancor, you can't turn on the news without some story full of conflict and hateful language and vilification of a group or a religion, a nationality, or a gender. And as a parent, of course, we want to protect our kids from that negativity and, you know, lift them up and provide a safe place for them to be kids. And also to have tools to be able to deal with instances of that when they arise. So not not just to shelter them away from it completely, but to sort of know what to do when it when it happens and to, to not have it knock them down. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, quite frankly, it can be frightening for adults. Sure. And then when you factor in the the hatred that is focused on women and on girls. Yeah. We can argue whether you think we live in a patriarchy or whether you think that misogyny is a problem, but you can't argue that women are being affected by this. Yeah, They just are. We are feeling it. And if we are feeling it, then chances are our daughters, our girls are probably at some level aware of it. Yeah, They are more perceptive than we may realize or want to admit. Yeah. I think there are things about the way we raise girls and the way we raise boys. And, you know, there are some stereotypes behind things like girls' toys and boys' toys. To some extent, that might be okay, but we have to separate that from it might be sort of reinforcing the patriarchy. Yes. You know, and so I think that's, that's a real challenge is sort of letting girls and boys be girls and boys and separate that away from the things that might be reinforcing negative stereotypes. Yeah, and where it's it's problematic and it really might impact the way they view themselves and the way they view their role in the world, yeah. their, their place in the world, what options are open to me. Yeah. 
these are really, I mean, these are really tough. There's no easy answers. Yeah, these are formidable challenges for any parent at any time. This is just a particularly difficult time, I would say. Now, I have not parented a child in any other decade, but um, (laughs) I... If if you have, then we need to have a serious conversation. (laughs) But um, the one thing that I do know is I feel it's difficult to be a woman right now. Mm -hmm. So... I want to do what I can as a parent to protect any girl child and, of course, my girl child from feeling that anxiety, that struggle, whatever I can do to shield or protect. And I keep using that word, and I know that inevitably it's it's kind of out of my hands. But, you know, as a parent, you want to do what you can and you want to learn what you can about how to do that. So that is why I invited our guest for today and was so thankful for her time and her perspective. And really, I was buoyed, I would say, by her less pessimistic outlook. Yeah. Outlook, I think, is fair to say. I think a lot of that outlook comes from having a toolkit. We want to sort of give our children, our girls, our boys, the tools that they need to succeed. And then what what they do with those tools really starts to be ultimately beyond our control. But the first thing that we can do is to be sure that they have the right tools. And this this is one of the things that come out of the, the interview, I think. Yeah, That's a great point. A toolkit and also a safe space. Yes. So my guest today is the amazing Dr. Dahlia Topolowski, who is a clinical psychologist. I hope you find this discussion as powerful as I did. Welcome to Women Transcend Dahlia. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for having me. I'm really thrilled to be here today to have this conversation. Yeah, I am thrilled to have you join us. This is a topic that I am by no means an expert in, but I am by all means interested in. So so I can't wait to hear your thoughts on this topic. So I'm just going to jump right in. Girl children, when developmentally... Do you think that girls start to become or start to be affected by gender norms? So I think it's a great question that a lot of us are asking in today's day and age. And I'm going to, all of my answers and this whole conversation, I'm sort of wearing two hats um, at the same time. One as a psychologist, but also as a mom of four children, two boys and two girls. And I think that both of those hats play a role in how um, I think about gender in different ways. I think that the short answer would be somewhere in childhood, you know, somewhere at a very young age, typically between three and five, where children really become gender aware and start to develop gender stereotypes really almost immediately. And these concepts become more defined between five and seven of age. 
And they seem to have more of a lasting impact on your identity and on girls um, and young women's self-esteem by adolescence. So that's the short answer. But I wanted to add to that that personally, after having a girl right after two boys, I think the gender stereotypes came immediately when I gave birth in a hospital. And immediately people were bringing me all the pink balloons and the pink clothing and lots of gender color specific colors, even though we all know that we don't believe that colors have gender. I think in our society, they definitely do. Uh huh. And I think historically, the pink and blue thing is kind of rather new. I mean, I remember reading that, you know, the turn of the last century, it was not girls are pink and boys are blue. And not that we haven't reinforced gender norms time immemorial, but the assigning of colors thing, I think is kind of new. Definitely kind of new. A lot of people always ask, is this nature? Is it nurture? I believe it's really a combination, though the research really seems to suggest that for the most part, it's nurture at a really young age. Children right away observe the roles of the people older than them, and they begin to act that out in their play and with their peers through imitation and instruction. I think that they learn from their environment. Yeah. And back to the booties, I remember I have a daughter and I remember before she was even one year of age, she got my first doll. And, you know, it was this little doll and it said right on it, my first doll. And I wonder if there's a correlate for boys. But, yeah, there was that expectation that if you're a girl, you play with dolls and here it is, your first doll. It was like this hallmark or something. Well, I definitely, having boys first, and my husband comes from a family where he's one of four boys, and then we had two boys, when one of our relatives did get our son his first doll, it definitely took some getting used to, and it was something that we discussed a lot in terms of why is that something we have to get used to? If we had a girl, it wouldn't even have been a thought, Uh you know, And, and both of our boys played beautifully with dolls. And I think that it only enhanced their sense of imagination. But again, because of the cultural norms that exist in our society, it makes parents feel comfortable or uncomfortable with gifts that their kids are given if they don't fit the norms that they were used to growing up. Yeah, that's a great point. And I remember my daughter even noting, well, that boy is playing with a doll. And we've never purposefully reinforced that dolls are for girls, trucks are for boys, but she had already picked that up. That boy's playing with a doll. Why is he playing with a doll? That's for girls. I mean, she didn't say that, but obviously that was in her surroundings and she absorbed that. So we had the discussion, you know, dolls are for everybody. Toys are for everybody. You can play with blocks and tinker toys and erector sets and boys can play with dolls and that's that's totally fine. So I think the point that you're actually bringing up is really important because we can't necessarily change a lot of what we see in the media and what we see when we go to toy stores and aisles, I think, are still segregated by gender and color very often in the toys. But I think what we can do as parents is make our children aware when they make a comment about, oh, this is a pink shirt. I can't wear it. I'm a boy. You know, when they, oh, that's a girl color. That's a boy color. It's up to us as parents to have that conversation and educate accordingly. Yeah, that's a great point. And back to the toy aisle, all you have to do is just glance down. I mean, the toys for girls, it's just a row of Pepto-Bismol pink. And then the next row over will be dark blue. 
and you know that one is for girls and one is for boys. And when you go shopping, the girls know, oh, this is pink and that's my aisle. Absolutely. I think that there's a lot that toy stores could do in terms of rebranding and figuring out better ways to present the toys and the options that they give kids. And I don't know how much they realize what kind of messages they are giving to our children when they just go to the toy store innocently and are gravitated toward one aisle or the, or the other. Yeah, exactly. So is there anything that we can do? You mentioned, you know, if, if it comes up in conversation, like I mentioned with my daughter, is there anything that we can do to help insulate or help our girl children better understand that they don't have to conform to these gender expectations or gender norms. And if they don't want to wear pink, they don't have to. And if they don't want to wear a dress, they don't have to. What can we do as parents? So I think as parents, these questions come up all the time. You know, I had one of my kids, they were coloring a picture the other day. And one of the siblings said, how come you're making only girl colors? So it's at that point in the conversation where you have a missed opportunity or you can gain an opportunity to educate your children and um, begin the conversation or continue the conversation. So I remember saying to my child at the time, sort of validating why they think that those are gender-specific colors, but also asking them, like, what do you think about it? Do you think colors are purely male or female, girl or boy? Or does it not make a difference whether um, a color is red or pink or blue colors are colors and it has nothing to do with gender. So I think, again, it's about how we respond in conversation and also about what we buy our children, opportunities for birthday presents and, you know, Hanukkah, Christmas, whatever the occasion is, um, when we're giving our kids our gifts to also like be cognizant. Are we only giving our kids gender specific types of toys, or are we opening them up to a whole range and world of different types of toys, which elicit different kinds of thinking and different kinds of behavior? Uh Uh-huh. You used a word that I think is very important, and that word was conversation. And I think I would like to point that out because it's my feeling that you don't just tell them pink is not just for girls, you can use any color, but rather, like you said, and use that opportunity, it's teachable moment, use it to start a conversation about what is their thinking and why they think those colors are girl colors versus boy colors, rather than just, you know, telling, right? Absolutely. I think that when our kids make a comment, we need to also understand and validate where that's coming from and not just shut them down. So if we simply respond by saying, what are, you, what are you talking about? Colors aren't boys or girls. They're just colors. We've also maybe shut down the conversation, perhaps. And I think our goal is to understand where that's coming from and make it an open conversation. So one thing that we can do then to prepare them is to be sure that we take every opportunity we can to have those conversations. Is there anything else that we can do to point out if we see a gender stereotype? Is that helpful or is is it, you know, depend on where they are developmentally? Like we see this a lot in the media. You know, why does the hero have to be a man? So we see this in the media. And I would also argue to say that we see it also in schools and textbooks where children are learning about all the first scientists and, you know, the first pioneers. And a lot of them are male. Yep. Um, And I think it is important, you know, young children are not always equipped, as most adults are, with 
critical thinking and the tools necessary to analyze and probe information, what is presented as fact, they usually take without question. And so I do think it is up to us to point out like, oh, what do you notice about all these scientists? And if they're not able to say, oh, they're all boys, you can say, look, oh, you know, you can make that comment. I noticed that most of them are boys. What do you think about that? And you could, again, open up the conversation because perhaps they don't know that at that time there were lots of laws in society that didn't give women access to even be able to become a scientist at that time, Uh you know, and then that would lead to a conversation. But that's not how things are today. And today we do have access to becoming who we want to be and what we want to be and promoting education and and subjects that perhaps in our history, women didn't always have access to. Yeah. and And girls at that time, there were accomplished women but we don't hear about them in the textbooks, just like you said. Correct. And if we know of accomplished women, you know, scientists and discoverers and pioneers and musicians and lots of people who aren't necessarily in the textbooks, then that's a that's a learning opportunity that we could surf the Internet with our child, go to a library and, you know, make them more aware and introduce them to female and girl role models. Uh-huh. So developmentally, it probably depends on each child. But when would you start introducing this? I mean, obviously not two or three. I I would imagine that's too young. But when do you start pointing out, you know, the person that saved the day was a man, but it could have been a woman, something like that. When do you start those conversations? So I think children are really our guide. When they start asking the questions, That just means that it's time to answer them in a developmentally appropriate way. The same way that when our children start asking us, where do babies come from? It's very different when a five-year-old asks that question than when a 10-year-old asks that question. But I think no matter when they start to ask, it's our job as a parent to respond appropriately according to their developmental level and their understanding. And you can have two children who at the same age didn't ask the same questions because they're different. You know, my kids have all asked those questions at different ages. Uh Uh-huh. I think another piece, Jennifer, is that we're role modeling right from the beginning. So we're role modeling to our children when there's something that we're trying to brainstorm and figure out. Our children look at us as as role models in terms of how they pick up on gender stereotypes. So, you know, depending on what our roles are and how we are relating that and communicating that to our kids, it's not just about answering their questions, it's about how they see us leading our lives. That's a great point. I think that that's something that is easy to get lost sort of in the shuffle of every day, but they're watching us all the time and they're listening to us all the time. And, you know, I think as parents, we really have to be careful about the stereotypes that we reinforce or the even the way that we refer to ourselves, because I think that they're listening and they pick up on that and then that becomes normalized to them or they adapt to that way of thinking. Yeah. And it's not, it's a tricky line, right? Because I think, first of all, for, for couples who are married, you know, people pick up different roles in the family. And I think that's completely normal. That's how families function. We each, you know, my husband might pay most of the bills and I might do most of the shopping. That doesn't necessarily mean that we're conforming to gender stereotypes. That's the decisions that we've made based on our own strengths, based on our time, based on our schedule. I think that we really minimize this topic in too much of a reductionistic fashion when we say that gender stereotypes are um, reinforced by simply the roles that we're taking upon ourselves in the home. I think it's so much more complex than that. Yeah. 
So I want to move along developmentally. And, you know, this is verified in the literature that as the girl child ages, you know, she is sort of, um, I don't know if it's less outgoing, but less willing to engage with new people. She's um, less likely to put raise her hand in class. What are the factors that are at play when that happens to a girl child? So again, um, there's so many factors that are at play. And one girl perhaps isn't raising her hand because she feels more insecure, having nothing to do with gender. And for you know other girls, it, it might more have to do with gender. So again, I think we have to be careful with making generalizations about girls raising their hand or not raising their hand in class. And obviously there's lots of boys who raise their hand or don't raise their hand. However, we do know there are lots of studies which do show that often teachers are calling on boys more often. I think a lot of it stems from real gender differences. And these are generalizations, of course, but how girls and boys tend to internalize or externalize behavior. So a lot of the research talks about how boys are more external with their behavior, girls are more internal. And so as a result, a lot of times boys make themselves more obvious in the classroom. Is that always the case? No, it's not always the case. But I think as a result, teachers sometimes call on boys more often. So I think it's actually up to educators and teachers to make those changes in the classroom, to be aware of those stereotypes, and to say that I'm going to make a conscious effort as a teacher to make sure that I'm calling on boys and girls equally, to make sure that when I'm grouping kids into different work groups in the classroom or for projects, that I'm careful and being careful about what roles they're taking upon themselves and making sure that one person, boy or girl, is sort of taking over that project. I think there's also a lot more these days in terms of the STEM program with science, technology, engineering, and math subjects that are just being more encouraged in the classroom, not just for boys. You know, um, my daughter went to a great tech slash sports camp this summer where half the day was tech and half the day was sports. And I was thrilled, you know, that she went and and that it wasn't stereotypically just for the boys. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. My daughter went to an engineering camp this summer and it was all boys save two girls. And I was so proud of her for going and she was excited to go. And I, I want to encourage that enthusiasm and excitement. And hopefully, hopefully I can because I want to kindle that flame um, and protect it. Right. Absolutely. So I think it's also about being in tune with our kids' strengths, with our kids' weaknesses, with their interests, and making sure that we're giving them an array of choices and not just presenting to them what's been stereotypical, you know, in the past. You know, one of my sons is loves sports and wants to do it all day mostly. And my other one is into theater and art and music and, and lots of things. And you know, I try really, really hard to follow each of their own passions and interests, regardless of the stereotypes in our society telling me otherwise. Uh huh. Okay. So this is going to sound like a silly question, but I think a lot of people kind of engenders <laughs> this issue, the Barbie doll. That was a good one. Uh, yeah. I like that, engendered. <laughs> <laughs> um, the Barbie doll. What do you think of Barbie? Barbie. So... It is so ironic that you asked me this question as my girls are now visiting their grandparents in Florida and have apparently been playing Barbie endlessly on the beach. They've set up their Barbie next to their towels and, you know, they've been engaged in imaginative imaginative play for hours is what I'm told. 
So I have a lot of mixed feelings about Barbie. And honestly, my feelings have developed and evolved in my years of parenthood. When my daughter was two years old, my first daughter, one of her relatives bought her a Barbie and I never gave it to her. In fact, I threw it out. Um, I tried to protect her from Barbie and I was very passionate that I wasn't going to let my girls play with Barbies. And I was nervous about the media and the effect Barbies had on body image and self-image and, you know, everything that a lot of us moms have read about. However, she started having play dates and she played Barbie at her friends. Yep. And then people started giving her Barbies. And I started noticing that she had a great time playing with Barbie. And at a young age, really, it didn't have anything to do with body image. She enjoyed it like she enjoyed playing with dolls or stuffed animals. And it, you know, it was a way of her to engage in imaginative play with others and with herself. And I saw other values to Barbie. So I think it's it's not a black and white issue. Barbies are bad. We should not give our children and our daughters or our sons access to Barbie. I think that Barbies could actually be a positive thing for our children when they are engaged in imaginative play and not just on their electronics. I'm thrilled that they're on a beach and jumping in the ocean and then playing with Barbie. But I do think it is important um, when it comes up um, or even when it isn't coming up to, again, have a conversation about it. And it's a really important point because I think that people think it's black and white. You know, you either buy them Barbies and they buy into the whole thing or you keep Barbies away and you're protecting them. Right. And what I noticed actually happened last week that one of my daughters was in a gymnastics camp. She wore a leotard the first day of camp. She came home and told me, tomorrow, mom, I'm not going to wear a leotard. I'm going to wear um, shorts and a t-shirt. I said, great, whatever you want to wear. Is there a reason that you don't want to wear your leotard? She said, yes, yeah, someone called me fat. Two girls were laughing at me. Oh. So as much as we want to just say that it's about Barbie and media, it's not. A lot of it is peers and uh -huh. how peers talk to our kids and things that our children hear from their peers. You know, she took that really seriously and really refused the rest of the week to wear her leotard. So advanced parenting moment here. How do you handle a situation like that? So the way I handled it was, of course, being a psychologist was, how did that make you feel? And she said, you know, really badly. And, you know, I said, how do you feel about your body? And it sort of opens up a really good conversation just about how she feels about herself. And then it went into another conversation about what we do when other people make comments that hurt our feelings and how she responded. And I used it as an educational moment, but I didn't use it as an opportunity to impose what I think she should or shouldn't wear the following day. You know, she didn't feel comfortable. I didn't want to make her wear her leotard, but I think it was really important that she came home, told me about that switch and that we were then able to have a conversation about it. Yeah. Okay. So letting your daughter, letting them know that it's safe to have that discussion. You want to have that discussion and you are ready to support. Absolutely. Uh -huh. To me, one of the most important things is that our kids, like I said before, aren't equipped like we are with the ability to necessarily think critically and analyze at a really young age. And so when they see things in the media or they see things in textbooks or they see things at school or they hear things from their peers, they're not able to just sort that out themselves always. And so I think that as parents, we need to be there to support, to open up the conversation. And when our child make a comment like the one I shared with you before about my daughter not wearing a leotard, using that as an opportunity to get to something 
underlying that comment, underlying her thoughts, and, and giving her the idea and letting her know that I'm there for her and that we can have these open conversations. Because ultimately, me hearing her or anybody like really listening to her validates her ability to have her own opinions, to think, and to be able to have those conversations in the future. That, that is really big. And, you know, we all want the best for our children. We all want to protect them from negative aspects of our society and negative messages and bullies and the ugly comments, but we can't. The reality is it's impossible. So the point you just made is really critical to be sure that they understand that that you are available to discuss things, that you love them, that you support them. That we care what they have to say it's, and that we're giving them the skills to process and think about all these really important issues. Exactly. And I guess the the flip side of that would just be if they didn't have that outlet, then it would just all be internalized and they wouldn't have, you know, without that outlet, I guess it would sort of just become a part of the fabric of them. I think when girls or boys aren't given the outlet to discuss what's on their mind and to discuss the concerns and the things around them in their world, they are more at risk for anxiety and depression. And so ultimately, we want to give them access and make them feel like they have access to open communication. Thank you for that. This has been such an enlightening conversation, and I so appreciate your expert opinion as a mom, as a psychologist, as just somebody who wants the best for your children and everyone's children. Thank you very much for this conversation. I know that- Thank you so much for having yeah, me. Yeah, absolutely. I, I know that there are moms and dads that will listen to this and will be very interested and introspective about you know, how we are all doing as parents. And in the end, we're all doing the best that we can. But it always helps to have someone like you, who is an expert in this, sort of give us best practices. Parenting, best practices. That's a lot of pressure on you. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, just one last thought, and that's about keeping up with the times, which is something that isn't so easy for all of us. Our kids have access to a lot more than we know half the time. But trying to be on top of that, I read an article just yesterday about how emojis are now being accused of being very gender specific and how that is the primary language that our kids are communicating in and it's only getting larger. And so to really be on top of the technology and the media so that we're able to have these conversations. If we don't know what's happening, we're unable to engage. Yeah, exactly. And emojis like... <laughs> Wow. <laughs> yeah. Emoji. Uh, yeah, that's the big thing now. And oh, my goodness. Yeah, that is an excellent point because um, technology is moving way faster than we are. And that's an excellent point because, again, that's one of those things that we want to put a little safety bubble around our children. And absolutely, we do the best that we can, but you just they can't live in this, you know, sacrosanct space reality gets in. Absolutely. Well, thank you so thank much you. for your time and your expertise. I've really enjoyed this discussion. Me too. And I appreciate all that you do. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Women Transcend. 
I would like to invite you to visit our Facebook page or join our Facebook group at Women Transcend to join the discussion on our episodes or curated articles related to topics that we discuss on this show. I would also encourage you to send us an email either through our website, uh, womentranscend.com, or our email address is women.transcend at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear where you're listening from. We'd love to hear your thoughts on our show, suggestions for topics, anything you want to share with us. I want to take a moment for a shout out to another podcast. There are some great indie podcasters out there doing some fantastic work. And today I would like to recommend you visit the podcast, She Who Persisted, the nasty podcast. I think you will find it a great listen. So thank you, She Who Persisted, for your great work. So friends, thank you for listening and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you can be sure that you won't miss an episode because it will automatically show up in your podcast player. A big thanks to Dahlia Topolowski for joining me for today's excellent interview and to John Philbeck for doing all of the fabulous sound artistry so that we sound so good. Tweet us at Women Transcend or follow us on Facebook because we always enjoy hearing from you. That's all for this episode. <laughs>